Due to the communion season and baptism, it has now been four weeks since we have been in the gospel according to Mark. It is therefore important that we remind ourselves the larger context. Jesus Christ has entered Jerusalem. He has come in his triumphal entry. He has attended the temple each day, teaching and preaching. And on one day, he did cleanse the temple. And from the end of Mark chapter 11 to the very end of Mark chapter 13, all these things that happen are within one single day. It is the Tuesday before the death of Jesus Christ. On this day, Jesus receives wave upon wave of attack. At the end of chapter 11, the first wave was from the Sanhedrin, that ruling body, that council in Jerusalem. And they attacked Jesus by questioning his authority. By what authority do you teach and preach? By what authority do you, do you minister? And you'll remember Jesus Christ refuted them by saying, I'll answer your question with a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And if he said, from heaven, then you should believe John who said, behold the Lamb of God. Or if you say it's the men, well, the man regard John as a true prophet and therefore they were silent. Or rather, not silent, we do not know the answer, lying. Then the Sanhedrin sent the Pharisees and the Herodians to do their will. And they wanted to bring a charge against Jesus Christ. They wanted him to say something against Caesar so that a capital offence would be laid upon him. And they tried to uh, acquire this charge by asking him a question concerning paying taxes to Caesar. And our Lord again refutes them by speaking more of the, the principle, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and to God the things which are God's. And they were silenced, and they must walk away. But here in Mark 12, 18 to 27, we had the third wave of attack. And now it's the job of the Sadducees. And they want to refute the authority of Jesus Christ by casting doubt upon and refuting the resurrection of the dead. Now, as soon as we hear the subject, the resurrection of the dead, our ears should perk up because it is essential to our faith. You know from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it describes the gospel as Jesus, who died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised again. And then in verse 13, it says, If Christ is not raised, then our faith is in vain and we're still in our sins. And there's this inseparable link because of union and communion between Christ and us. 
because the resurrection of the dead is linked to his own resurrection. And therefore, for our faith, our salvation, our forgiveness of sins, our hope of everlasting life, all of this is entirely based upon the truth of the resurrection of the dead. And therefore, if the Sadducees are right, then we're in our sins. We must be terrified of death and we'll all be cast into hell. But of course, if Jesus Christ is correct, our faith in him means we are saved. We are forgiven of our sins and death has been conquered and we will receive resurrection life. So this is very important, not just for an argument here, but for the redemption of Christ and the redemption of his people. We're going to look at this under three headings. One, the Sadducees and the resurrection. Two, marriage and resurrection. Three, the Bible and resurrection. So first of all, the Sadducees and resurrection. It says in verse 18, they come unto him, the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying. Now, there's not that much we know about the Sadducees. There's there's not many extant writings available for us. We know much more of other groups than the Sadducees. But taking the information in the Bible and outside of the Bible, we can come to some form of conclusions. The Sadducees were one of the three main sects of first century Judaism. Uh, The other two sects were the Pharisees, which are of course in the Bible, and the Essenes, which are not here in the Scriptures. And the uh, Sadducees, the Pharisees, and Essenes had their own distinctive beliefs and practices. Uh, In some way, you could say it's like Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, and Eastern Orthodoxy to a certain extent. But the name Sadducee uh, seems to come from the high priest under King David, Zadok. These people believed that they were in direct lineage from Zadok. And in the Hebrew, it's a T-S, not a Z, it's a Sadok. And that became in the Greek, Saduk Sees. And this means simply those who descend from Sadoc, the high priest under King David. The Sadducees were not a popular party like the Pharisees. We think the Pharisees, everyone hated them. They were actually very popular and well-liked in, in Israel and Judaism in general. But the Sadducees were of the elite. Uh, it was a priestly class. They were aristocratic And therefore, they were rather unpopular. But what distinguishes the Sadducees from the Pharisees and the Essenes is, yes, the things we've previously mentioned, but specifically what they believed. The Pharisees believed the entire Old Testament canon 
was inspired, infallible, and authoritative. The Sadducees accepted only the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pharisees believed there was an oral tradition from Moses to their time, which was of equal inspiration and authority to the Holy Scriptures. But the Sadducees rejected this for the Scriptures alone, and those Scriptures, of course, the Pentateuch, were the inspired authority for believers. The Pharisees believed in the sovereignty of God, predestination, God's eternal decree, and the Sadducees denied these things and emphasized the free will of man. The Pharisees firmly believed in the supernatural, angels and demons, the immortality of the soul, life after death, the resurrection of the body. But the Sadducees denied all these things. In one way, you could say they were the liberals of their day. And this is why in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the Sadducees forbid the apostles from preaching the resurrection. But then in Acts chapter 23, there's a rather humorous episode, to be honest where Paul has been arrested, he is put on trial of a sorts, and then he notices, who is he before? Pharisees and Sadducees. And it says in Acts 23, verse 6, when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead I am called in question. When he had said so, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. And so there we see the Sadducees are people who believe in only the Pentateuch. They believe um, only in these scriptures as authoritative. They believe in only free will and deny God's sovereignty. And they deny um, the immortality of the soul, life after the dead, resurrection of the body, angels and demons. And as it says here in verse 18, they say there is no resurrection. But they're coming to Christ. And they want to refute his authority. And they want to do it by attacking the resurrection of the dead. But they have a particular method. It's an old classic uh, method of argumentation. In the English, it is reducing to the absurd. It is in the middle of an argument you will construct a case whereby you reduce the thesis to its implications. 
and by showing the absurdity and the ridiculousness of the implications, you therefore refute the thesis of the argument. And so they want to show you that if you believe in the resurrection of the dead, let me show you the implications, and the implications are absurd and ridiculous, and therefore the resurrection of the dead is wrong. They begin with the Bible. And they quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 6. And they say in verse 19, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Okay. This is what we call the Leveret Law. That comes from the Latin mean brother-in-law. Remember, Israel is about inheritance and land and generation to generation. So a brother, a man, comes and marries a wife, but the man dies. Now, to protect his name, his inheritance, it is the duty of the next of kin to marry that woman and so raise up a seed And the inheritance of the brother will continue. One of the most famous cases of this is, of course, in the book of Ruth, where uh, Naomi has went to the land of Moab, and uh, her husband and two sons have died. And Ruth, of course, has married one of her Naomi's sons. And then she is looking for the next of kin. Someone who would come and marry Ruth, And then the family lineage would continue through Ruth. For example, Ruth chapter 4 verse 5, where Boaz comes and says, What day thou buyest a field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth, the Moabites, the son of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. So now we have this principle. And then from verses 20 to 23, Let's apply this principle. Here's a woman and she marries a man. And the man dies. So she marries his brother. Then he dies. Then she marries another brother. And he dies. And so on and so forth until the seven men married to this one woman and they all die. And then verse 23 In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And this is a real scenario. Uh, If not direct with the Leverite law, at least with multiple wives. Think about someone who is a true believer like David. Now, did David sin in having multiple wives? Yes, but he still had multiple wives. How many wives will David have in heaven? Will there be polygamy in heaven? Or think of someone like the bride of the reformer, Webrandris Rosenblatt. She was a godly woman in the 1500s and she married four reformers and she was widowed by all four reformers. So in heaven will she have four husbands? 
or today? Do we not have people who, who are married and then become widowed and then remarry? Will such Christians have one, two, three, four spouses in heaven? So it's a real question. But of course, they're looking for the absurdity and the ridiculousness of it. How would you answer? What is your response? This is something we should do. First Peter chapter 3 clearly tells us, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks of you a reason, an apologetic of the hope that is within you. Do you not believe in the resurrection of the dead? And so, do you believe there's going to be polygamous society in heaven now? How would you answer? Because my friends, there's nothing new under the sun. There are Sadducees today. Whether it's just outright atheists who mock the idea of the resurrection of the dead. Or liberals who deny the supernatural world, who deny the immortality of the soul, who who simply say resurrection is waking up every morning with a fresh new lease of life. Or the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the immortality of the soul and they deny a resurrection of the dead. Or with full, or what we call hyper-preterists, that everything was fulfilled in 1870, and therefore resurrection in the Bible is only spiritual resurrection. Whatever form of Sadduceeism, it's present. So how do we answer this? Well, how does Christ answer? Well, he doesn't really be subtle, is he? He's not subtle, he is clear. You do Err. The word there means to be mistaken, to be wrong, to be led astray, to be deceived. You're deceived. You're away from the truth. You are wrong. That's for everyone who denies the resurrection of the dead. You do not know the Scriptures. These are people who memorize the Scriptures more than anyone in this room but they do not know, understand, rightly interpret the Scriptures. It's not a, that's your interpretation and my interpretation. No, 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 no. I'm right and you're wrong. And you do not know or understand the Scriptures. And you deny the power of God. Whether you're denying doctrine or denying the Bible, you're also going to the ultimate a denial of God himself. To deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny God's almighty power. And then, in verse 25, he refutes them by teaching them the nature of the resurrection. And then in verses 26 to 27, their understanding of the scriptures. So, Marriage and resurrection, verse 25. This is how Jesus Christ refutes them. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. 
Quite simply, there is no marriage in heaven. Your whole argument against the resurrection of the dead is completely false because your presuppositions and the basis of your argument are completely false. You view resurrection of the dead as if we're raised from the dead so that we begin to live life again like we did on earth. You believe when you're raised from the dead, you're going back to being married and a husband and a wife and father and living in a society structure of households and including everything that flows from that, working together as a banker or as a engineer or as a what have you. That is the wrong way of looking at the resurrection of the dead. Marriage is only for the earth. It is not for heaven. Marriage was given by God himself as a gift to mankind while on earth and only for the time we are on earth. And God gave it as a very good gift, did he not? He created everything very good. As we heard yesterday, uh, God created man male and female. He said it's not good for man to be alone. He made Eve out of the rib of Adam. She would be a helper suitable for him. They were to leave parents and cleave one to another. And he did it for wonderful, wonderful purposes. The purpose of companionship. Whosoever findeth a wife finds a good favour from the Lord. Where a man and wife can have a deep, intimate, loving relationship. He did it for procreation. Because we need children to extend the human race. In 200 years time, I'm not going to be here. You're not going to be here. So how will humanity be here in 200 years time? By procreation. And then there's the dominion mandate. We're to populate the earth so we can be servants of God and representing him more particularly with a godly seed. But when there is the leaving earth, there is no marriage. This is why we believe in remarriage, of course. Romans chapter 7. The woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. Her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. That's why in our marriage vows, till death do us part. And... Of course, love, that love continues, but the, uh, uh, the widow is free to remarry and it's not adultery. And so, marriage was 
created and given by God exclusively for life on this earth, for the purposes we have already mentioned, and when we leave this earth, be it through death or in the final state, there is no marriage. And part of the problem is we seek to have the things on earth and import it to heaven. We are far, far too comfortable and enjoying and loving the things of this earth that we want it to remain forever. We are far too worldly minded than biblically minded. And we need to learn as Christians to think of heaven as heaven as the Bible reveals it and be thankful for earth as God has given it and not force our views on the next sphere of existence and life. And sadly today, um, you'll notice if you read anything about the subject before the Industrial Revolution and then after the Industrial Revolution, complete change. (coughs) Complete change. You read people before the Industrial Revolution, they have the right biblical historical view of these things. And you'll talk about them going to heaven and being with Christ and enjoying Christ. And yes, they love their spouses. Yes, they love their children. Yes, they love their countries. But they're not looking for that in heaven. They're looking for God. You think of the Puritans who lost like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 children. You think of Puritans who married three, four, five times because their marriage would last only three or four years. And they were heartbroken. And you read their diaries and their poems or the sermons that came out of that pain. And yet every step of the way, they're not saying, oh, I want to have earth on heaven, so to speak. But then the Industrial Revolution changes everything. Maybe it's because life's become a misery now, because rather than being living in the country in the open and fresh air, now it's just 18-hour work shifts in a, in a factory in dark, dank cities, cramped and so on. After that, it starts to change. Heaven is just a perfected earth existence. If you read popular books like Randy Alcorn or, or Wayne Grudem, then you'll start to see heaven is basically earth but better. I remember um, attending a reformed conference a few years ago uh, about heaven and the the very world-renowned preacher uh, started to preach on what's heaven like. Heaven is like earth but glorified. Where work society is the same but better. If you play golf, you'll probably get hole-in-ones all the time. He literally said that without a joke. Or tennis, Uh, you'll be hitting aces in tennis all the time, that's a serve. Or music, everyone will be fantastic at music and everyone will be skilled like Mozart and Bach and so on. That's how he presented heaven. That's the majority reform view today, I think, when you read the books. And what they're doing is they've got the mindset of the Sadducees, where they're presupposing resurrection is heaven is earth, but better. But Jesus is saying your entire presupposition is wrong. 
marriage and the life we have it now is for this earth, not for heaven. But what is it like then? He says, it'll be as the angels. You have to be careful here. This is not absolute. This is not Hollywood. When you die, you become an angel. He's saying like the angels. Not in every respect, but only in some respects. Now, Scripture interpreting Scripture keeps us safeguarded from errors. So how will we be like the angels? Angels are spiritual, immortal, and incorruptible beings who dwell in heaven in the presence of God, live without the constructs of human society, such as marriage and children, but live as one holy united communion to worship God and behold his blessed glory forever. That's what it means. The Bible teaches these things about the angels. For example, Psalm 103 verse 20, Ye his angels that excel in strength. They are so strong, they are immortal. We die, they don't. They live forever, we don't. In this state I'm speaking of. Hebrews 1.14, they are ministering spirits. They don't have physical bodies. They're not material bodies. They're spiritual beings created for spiritual existence, for spiritual purposes. And Revelation chapter 5 gives a window to the spiritual purpose. Revelation chapter 5 I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. They're in the presence of God in Christ. They're worshipping and beholding the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We will not be married in heaven because the resurrection body is as the angels in exceeding strength, immortal, no need for procreation, no need for societal structures such as family, spiritual beings with the spiritual purpose of worshipping God, communing with God and beholding Christ's glory forever. And this is taught in the Bible. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we read. What is the nature of the resurrection? There is flesh, but there's different kinds of flesh. There's a flesh of a man, the flesh of a fish, the flesh of a bird. It's all flesh, but there's different kinds of flesh. Glory. There's the glory of the sun, there's the glory of the moon, there's the glory of the stars, but they're different in qualities. And so, 
we will be raised in the self-same body. Identity is the exact same. Recognition is the exact same. But far greater excellent qualities for a new sphere of living. 1 Corinthians 15, 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. So, even Adam's body before the fall, you cut off his head, he would die. His body was yet to be glorified. Our human bodies on earth are created in corruption. That means they corrupt, they erode. You get older, you need glasses. You get sick, get a bad back, etc., etc. It is sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Glory. Our bodies are normal, they're average, they're, they're, there's nothing splendid about them in the sense of shining forth the excellencies. But when we're raised, Matthew 13, they will shine like the sun. There'll be a glow. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Our bodies are weak. We can suffer with sadness, misery, pain, death. But the resurrection bodies have none of these things. They're immortal There's no need for procreation anymore. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Natural there means animal body. It means basically a body for this earth's needs. The desires for food. The desires hunger. The desires for uh, 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 the companionship of a spouse. And it's for the, God's given these as gifts, they're not sins. Um, God's given these things for this life. But when we're raised, spiritual bodies. That doesn't mean invisible bodies, it means spiritual bodies. Spiritual in the Bible means endowed by the Holy Spirit for the purposes of a higher heavenly existence. And then it goes on to say that Adam's body was earthy, And Christ's resurrection body is heavenly. And when you see Christ's heavenly body, it's very different in qualities. It can pass through doors. Stephen, Paul, John see Jesus Christ's resurrected body and it's shining and splendid and glorious. And so our bodies are not for the earth anymore, but from a spiritual heavenly existence. And where will this existence be? In heaven. What does John 14 verse 2 or 3 says? I go away to prepare the Father's mansions for you. So it's not on earth. When I come back, I will be with you forever. No, I will come back and I will receive you to where I am, the Father's mansions. Heaven is not like earth. Earth, we work, we labor, we have callings, we have talents and gifts and use them in society. We have family structures, household to household. We marry, we procreate, we extend the race. In heaven, it's very, very different. 
is to worship and commune with God forever. And therefore, there's no need for marriage. There's no need for children in terms of having children. And there's no need for societal structures and labor and so on and so forth. But some objections and questions rightly come in here. Am I saying that we will not know our husbands and wives anymore? I'm not saying that at all. Resurrection of the dead is not wiping your memory like some spy movie. Like you're raised from the dead, I have no idea what happened when I was on earth. Of course not. In fact, you have perfected memories. (laughs) Glorified minds. When David lost his child in 2 Samuel, what did he say? I will be with my son again. He will not come to me, I will go to him. And so in heaven, David will know and recognize his son. And if anyone has ever lost their children in the womb or outside of the womb, that's the comfort. They will know and recognize their lost children. Or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Thessalonians are grieving. They've lost husbands and wives and family members. And Paul says, do not grieve as if you have no hope. He says, when Christ comes, he'll come with them. And those who are alive will be, will be changed. There'll be a resurrection and we'll all be together, it says. Very clear in the Greek, all be together, recognizing, knowing one another. And then we'll be with the Lord. So when the resurrection then you will know that's my husband or that's my wife or that's my child or that's my friend or that's my cousin or that's my auntie. You will know and you will recognize them as such. But you will not live with them as husband and wife in your own home, separate from that household and that household and that household and that household. You'll know them, recognize them, be with them, but society in heaven is changed. But will I not be sad I don't get to exclusively live with my husband or wife ever again? No, no, you won't. You will not be sad. It's the same answer as, um, will I be sad that I will know people who are in hell? You will not. Revelation chapter 21, sorry, Revelation chapter 19 says that uh, those in heaven rejoice uh, in God over those who are in hell. Because they're in hell because of their sins and God is just and therefore you rejoice at the justice of God. Now you think like I think, well I can't do that. You're right, you can't end these bodies now because we're so indwelling sin and selfishness. But with a glorified, perfected body, you have a perfect will for the glory of God. And you'll be so amazed at God's glory of justice and holiness, you will praise him for people in hell. And when you are raised from the dead and you're no longer living in a married society, you will no longer be sad because your glorified body means you have a perfect will for God. It means, first of all, your desires will not be for earthly existence. Your desires will be for heavenly existence. You don't want to go back to earth. Heaven's far greater, far better. Therefore, you have a greater desire. That's why we're made spiritual. 
spiritual bodies, for spiritual things, not earthly things. Samuel Shaw. Their souls shall not any longer desire nor hanker after any created thing, but as the angels shall be possessed of God, filled with the fullness of God. All their powers and faculties are perfectly refined and spiritualized, abstracted from all earthly created things, eternally rejoicing and delighting themselves in the contemplation and participation of the supreme and infinite good. That's your desire, and you'll never want to go back to earth. But secondly, you will still have fellowship and you'll be satisfied. Your husband, your wife, your children and family, if they are in Christ, will be there and you recognize them as so. But you want society better than it is on earth. There's going to be a holy union of fellowship. Think of Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 13. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations, kindreds, and people, and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and upon the Lamb. And all the angels stood around about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne of their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might unto God forever and ever. You'll be with all the saints and all the angels who are elect and will spend all of eternity in a one united holy society and you will not yearn for your earthly society ever again. And thirdly, your desire and will was for that supreme good, beholding the very glory of God in Jesus Christ. When you read your Bible and you read of the resurrection of the dead and the life to come, what do you see the emphasis as? A glorified present? No, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We know the verses. Job's hope. Though after my skin, worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. My children who died. Oh, I want to see them again. I'm sure he does. I'm not denying that whatsoever. But what's his all-consuming passion here? To see God. Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied. Not disappointed. Satisfied. When I awake with thy likeness. 1 John 3, 2. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for he, we shall be with him as he is. And Revelation. What's the glory of Revelation? What's the glory of heaven? It's not the removal of the curse. Wonderful. It's not sinless existence, wonderful. It's not meeting our loved ones, wonderful. 
It is the glory of God shining in Jesus Christ. There is no sun, there is no moon, because the Lamb is the light thereof. And Revelation 22, they shall see his face. Richard Baxter was someone who suffered greatly in his life. He lost family members. He lost a spouse, I believe, and children. He suffered greatly with diseases. But when he looked for heaven, what's his all-consuming passion? Biblically, Christ. He says, my knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But tis enough that Christ knows all and I shall be with him. Is that not us? My knowledge of heaven is so ignorant. My faith for for living in heaven is so dim, but I know this at least, I will be with him. Or Samuel Rutherford, he said that heaven is heaven because Christ is there. If Christ was not there and heaven was blessed and eternal and without a curse and without sin and full of peace, he would not want to go there. If Christ was in hell, that would make hell heaven. And he suffered as well. He lost his own spouse. And yet what was his desire? Christ. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand, the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Not the blessings, not the crowns he gives us. It's all about him. And so Jesus Christ is saying, oh Sadducees, you get resurrection completely wrong. It's not earth perfected, but it's better, higher and glorious. There is no marriage in heaven It's a new, perfect, infinitely blessed state as the angels. We'll skip the third point for next week. And some would say this is discouraging. It's discouraging to us who are married because we sincerely love our spouses. Some would say it's discouraging this morning because it's the morning after a wedding service. I say it's the perfect kind of sermon. One, because it's truth. It's truth. Is that not what we want? And I didn't design to preach this this morning. That was Christ. He moved me to Mark. I preached Mark consecutively. God gave me sickness last week, so I didn't preach this last week's evening service. And he, for some reason, wanted me to preach this here this morning. Secondly, it's helpful for us because it helps us to appreciate our married lives and children now. Not to take it for granted. Whether we've been married for a single day, and not even a day, whether we've been married for a few years or decades, never, ever, ever take for granted marriage. To appreciate it and make the most of it here and now. So therefore, it is the greatest encouragement for every husband and wife, or would-be husband and wife, to Spend every day as a special day 
to enjoy your God-given marriage. Thirdly, this is important for us so that we do not commit idolatry. God says, thou should have no other gods before me. Your husband and your wife cannot be your God. Your husband and your wife cannot be the object of your faith and trust. Your husband and wife cannot be your supreme good, love, meaning, and purpose. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus Christ says in verse 26, If anyone loves husband or wife or children or parents or self more than me, ye cannot be my disciple. And therefore to love, and this is hard for us, but it's true, it is not for us. We are not allowed to love family more than Christ. We must love Christ more than family. And if we know the gospel, that is not hard. Because who died for our sins? Who left heaven for us? Who was under the infinite wrath of Almighty God for us? Who's loved us with an everlasting love? Who's perfectly uh, loved us? Who will love us for all eternity? He will sanctify us and keep us and glorify us. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Charles Spurgeon once said to husbands and wives, let us beware of placing ourselves too high in one another's affections because God said, my glory I will not give to another. And fourthly, this is important to keep us in a pilgrimage mindset. Hebrews 11 is clear. We are pilgrims and strangers of this earth. We're thankful what God has given us, but we want heaven. We want a better country, a spiritual one. Our citizenship is in heaven. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain, not lack. And we need to cultivate this Christ teaching here in our minds that the resurrection of the dead is to something far better and greater. We should long and pray for and desire and meditate and walk in the light of this truth. And then when we do get to heaven, husband and wife who are in Christ, uh, siblings and parents and children and grandchildren, great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren should the Lord tarry. They'll be in heaven. They'll recognize each other. They'll love each other with a perfect love, which I've never done on this earth. But we will all be turning away from self and beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. And we will be infinitely, eternally satisfied. Let us pray.